Jim. You are listening to Feel Free to Deviate, the podcast about people, their careers, and their relationships with success. I don't know if 10 episodes is actually a landmark, but I'm going to call this a landmark episode simply because I can. We're in the double digits. Esme Falk is the guest on this landmark 10th episode of Feel Free to Deviate. She's a Pickler pedagogue. You probably have no idea what that is, so let me tell you. Pickler pedagogy is a child-rearing philosophy developed by Dr. Emmy Pickler, and the people who disseminate Pickler's ideas are known as Pickler pedagogues. Some folks may be more familiar with the term rye parenting. Evidently, that's what they call it in America. We talk mostly about Pickler stuff during our conversation, but also about stress, burning out, and the joys and pitfalls of pursuing an art career with or without kids. It was a nice talk. I had to edit out a lot of stuff that didn't quite fit with the theme. It makes me think I should release some extra or bonus episodes to see if people listen to them. You know, we, we talked about lentil soup and instant pot recipes. It's not really podcast stuff, but maybe someone would find it interesting. Let me know if you would like to hear some outtakes. It might be fun. Pickler is spelled P-I-K-L-E-R, by the way. Up until just now, I was spelling it incorrectly. Also, I couldn't help but make pickle jokes about the name. I guess I have issues. The episode starts off a bit differently than usual, but whatever. Standard guest introduction is about seven minutes in, if you're curious. Also note that Esme's audio changes a few times during the conversation. I would explain the reason why if I thought you wanted an explanation, but I assume you don't. So I'll just say that I'm sorry if you find the shift between proper mic and computer mic offensive. And yes, the mic disclaimer slash apology is another landmark event on the podcast. It is a rite of passage for every podcast. And that's how you know this shit is for real. Okay, here's episode 10 with Esme Falk. Let's get pedagogue. I never really know how these are going to go. Yeah. I think that each one sort of has its own life. So I'm just going to kind of roll with it, and I hope you're happy with the results. Yeah, well, I did not prepare, so I'm kind of open. Yeah. And uh, we'll just see where where this conversation takes us. But why did you start this uh, uh, project? There are multiple reasons. I don't have a prepared diatribe. There are several reasons, though. One, I have a, I have a lot of time on my hands, and... It feels weird not to be using it for something. Now, there are plenty of things I could do. There's a lot of home improvement that could be happening right now <laughs> that is not. That's not really my favorite thing to do. But I listened to enough podcasts that I thought this would be a, a fun thing to do. And maybe if I make one, at the very least, it could prove to other people that I can do it. And maybe someday I might get paid to do it, which would be nice. So it's kind of uh, it's kind of like a personal development thing while I'm unemployed to show that I have several skills because I, I, I wrote the music, I wrangle the guests, I arrange the infrastructure. You know, I do at least 50% of the audio. In, in this case, you you are we're recording remotely. But initially, I intended to mostly do it in my house. But I'm finding that doing it remotely makes a lot more sense mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in some cases. So, yeah, it showcases, it showcases that I have several abilities that might be valuable to somebody else. What, why the, this topic? And, and what is it bringing you so far? 
That's another good question. This topic in some form or another has always been with me. I I didn't even realize it when I first uh, started doing this, but a friend sort of pointed out that the topic of reconciling one's level of success or trying to figure out what what success is or, or, or even measuring other people's expectations with what you actually are, whether it's perceived or actual, has been something that I've been dealing with for a long time. My, if you recall, I used to do a lot of self-portraiture, and the main theme of my biggest project was expectations versus reality. And it was things that people may have either offhandedly mentioned that they thought, oh, when, when you grow up, I thought you were going to be a basketball player, or I thought you were going to be an astronaut, or I thought you were going to do this or that or the other thing. I think that it's always had less to do with other people's actual expectations and more about my my own, perhaps. Or was it was there something culturally like uh, some kind of pressure that you felt as you grew up to make something of your life? There probably was, but it's not like I had high pressure parents or anything. In retrospect, I actually think that they do not care at all what I do. But if you do if you do well in school or if you do well at sports or if you do well at whatever, people tend to think, oh, this guy's going places. And you get that you get that vibe, whether again, whether it's real or in your own head. It's it's all being processed in my head. So I'm picking up cues that are saying, oh, you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. And then there's the entire education system that says you go to high school. Then if you are at a certain level, then you go to university or trade school or whatever. And there were always expectations that I should go on to do these things. But I never really knew what I wanted to do. And I still don't know what I want to do. But I still don't think like like my end game is becoming a photographer. Like I, I like to photograph things, but I have no desire to be a commercial photographer. Mm-hmm. I'm in the midst of a job search and I'm looking at people and friends and, and whatever connections are on LinkedIn, for instance. I don't know if you use LinkedIn, but no. well, don't start if you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so many people in my age bracket and so many people in our age bracket are directors of things or vice presidents of things or this and that and i'm thinking to myself really you're a what what are you directing to me they're just someone i went to high school with and then i'm i'm out here applying for jobs which are far below that level and i'm getting rejected so i guess it's sort of a midlife crisis i i don't know what's going on Mm -hmm. and i'm trying not to freak out about it Mm -hmm. and i'm freaking out a little but Talking to people helps a little bit for lots of reasons. For for instance, we haven't talked for a while. I think it's nice to just talk to you. I'm not the type of guy that always reaches out. It sort of forces me to talk to people to be more social, which makes me feel better about my situation. I think it's inspiring to hear how people make their own stuff work. And ev- I know everyone also feels like feels a lot of pressure and they don't necessarily feel like they're successful. But you know, maybe it's good for them, too, to hear that someone thinks that they're successful. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. I Well, I, I had to think about some, some things as we were talking. Like one of the things that uh, me and uh, Thomas used, we asked ourselves many years ago this question, and I've kept on repeating it to myself every now and then, which has helped me a lot. 
is, do I know people around me who I'd like to trade lives with? That's a good one. Yeah, it was always good because every time I asked this question, I answered no. Because even people who were very successful and from the outside, they seemed very happy. Then I thought, yeah, but it has a price because they are working, I don't know, 60 hours a week or something. There's always a price. Yeah, do I like that for my life? And then the answer was always, nah, nah, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm good. And, and I think if the answer would be yes, yes, I would like to trade my life with so-and-so, then that would immediately be then a guide towards what it is that they have that you don't have that you think you could change or actively pursue or something. That's sort of how I feel about the podcast not in that there's a specific job or a specific thing that that person is doing that I would rather be doing myself. For instance, I have no interest in being a pickler pedagogue. <laughs> I, um, the last woman I interviewed has a, runs a clothing line. I have no interest in doing that myself. Before that, this woman, Robin, is she's a food photographer which is actually something that I could do technically, but I have no desire to do that. It's more about how people realize these things that's interesting to me. And also, where does the passion come from? And, and what's the motivation? Or how do you stimulate yourself to go and make those things happen? For instance, Esme Falk, thank you for being on my podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, <laughs> I mean, we didn't introduce. I don't, I don't have a problem straying from the format. The reason that you are here is because you... After years of searching, I don't know if you were searching actively, but you were you were looking for some way to make your child rearing experience better. You tried certain things, some of them worked out, some of them didn't. Eventually you discovered this method. I'm gonna get crazy here and say that unless they're looking for this, nobody knows what a pickler pedagogue is. You find the thing and you dig deep into it and then you go for it and then you decide this is what I'm doing. You have training as an artist, you have you're a researcher, you do all kinds of stuff, you've tried different stuff, but this is what you've latched onto because it's part of your life and it's made you feel that you've gained something from it and now you're trying to share it. Well, <laughs> here I am putting words into your mouth, but it seems to me that you're trying to share these things that helped you. And it's that. It's not the pickler pedagogy specifically that interests me, but it's the fact that you found it and dug into it and are now committed to it and have turned it into what you do. Yeah. Not that it's making you rich, not that you're a famous pickler pedagogue. <laughs> it's just that that you found something and you latched onto it and now you're making it your livelihood. Yeah. And in, in just my own observations, I see how it might happen because I know, I know you personally and I know some of your history, but I know very little about your early artwork, but I, I know that when, when you went to, when you went to grad school, you, you, you seem to have seriously locked, locked on to the research methodology and everything after that is built on heavy research of whatever topics you become interested in, and then you manifest them. So, so I'm just wondering, is that like something that you've always had or is that something you learned or? No, I, yes. did, I didn't always had that. I did, I think, always had a kind of a desire to want to go deep and learn a lot. And then when I was at Pizzoit, which is a master fine art, I really discovered 
the joy in researching and going into it and one thing leading to another and ending up places where you weren't expecting to go. So that became part of my practice as an artist. I think during school, I probably didn't make the best work, but that didn't matter. I was really transforming my art practice. So before that, I was making works that uh, were very labor intensive. And usually I knew ahead of time what I was going to make. And then I would execute it and I would spend like three months or so producing the work of art. And I made some good pieces and got some recognition and praise for it, but they were not fulfilling for me as a person to be making those items. I wasn't surprised. So it became kind of a drag to finish it. Are you talking about your undergraduate school or or during graduate school? It, it, it was just before starting Piet Swart. So in the years between graduating from the Aki and then starting Piet Swart, though in those years I made several. So I studied fashion design first. I ah, was okay. See, I didn't even realize you were a fashion. See, that, yeah. that's a complete transformation, right? Yeah, I've transformed several times in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I was graduating as a fashion designer, but I already wasn't interested in becoming a fashion designer. I was interested in textiles and the history of textiles and what it means socially. There's a lot to know and learn about uh, social life woven, literally woven into uh, the fabric. So those aspects really interested me, but I didn't really know, knew how to make a work or a living with that as a basis maybe perhaps now I would but I didn't know at the time and then also life happened and I had just met Thomas and he was from England and we wanted to be together so I moved to London then I just had you know jobs to sustain life but it was actually really stressful to live in London and then uh, we moved back to to the Netherlands and I tried to make my life work to to start to establish myself as an artist. And in those days, I was making works that were very labor intensive. So they, they were heavily relating to handwork and technique, which I enjoyed doing. And I, I think one of the reasons why I enjoyed doing it is because you become into some kind of, it is a meditative practice. And yeah, that definitely. was... That was very soothing to occupy myself with that. But like I said, one of the downsides of of making work like that was that I already knew what I was going to make. So I was just executing a certain idea. And that became very boring after a while. So I graduated in 2000 from from the Aki. And then in 2006, I started Piet Swart, which was a two-year course. Just to clarify, the Aki is the undergraduate and Pizza of Art is the graduate program. Yes, yeah, the master program. And I I studied then uh, fine art. I had already made the switch from fashion to fine artist because I never practiced anything to do with fashion really other than hobby, just making stuff, clothing for myself. I started doing a lot of research and really enjoying that because it would take me to places I wasn't expecting and I didn't know. The trajectory was just, you know, open. I was making works after graduating, usually working for about a year and incorporating film and installation. Then I made the piece in 2010 that was really 
it actually involved Marlene, your wife, who uh, whom I asked to work with me, and I asked several other people to work with me, and it was just wonderful. I think that was is the artwork I'm most proud of. Which was that? Is that that's the the artwork called Showcasing Today's Essentials, and it involved like a lot of research. It, it was an installation, and it was also a film, and these and they all work together. The experience. Oh, that, but this is this is after graduate school, right? Yeah, yeah. This was 2010. So I looked into the history of window dressing, and I was thinking a lot about the choreography of space and the visitor uh, inside that artwork, experiencing it, and kind of how to also communicate some of the research and some of the things that I had found out into the work of art, but without becoming didactical. And these were all very interesting concepts to work through. So I worked for about a year on this project. And then later, uh, 2013, I became a mother. And that was very big life-changing moment. And I realized a lot of things about myself and how my life was structured and things that couldn't continue. It was just hard to continue. Also, my child was very sensitive or is very sensitive. We had a hard time initially, so he was crying a lot. And we were really finding our way to become a parent. And also how to combine that with uh, my artist practice. So then I really ended up in a personal crisis where due to lack of sleep and the stress of combining <laughs> motherhood with artist practice led, led me to a burnout. And... And kind of around the same time, I visited this playgroup with my child. So that was a Pickler playgroup. And it was as if I stepped into my own artwork. So it, it really <laughs> resembled in many ways that artwork that I'd made in 2010. Okay. In what ways? Like the space was very choreographic, the way that it related to autonomy uh, in this case, the autonomy of the child, the whole setup of the playgroup is really that uh, a child can follow its own initiative. And as a parent, you observe, you watch what your child is doing. And meanwhile, you learn a lot about your child's play and movement development, but also how to, to sit back and not uh, steer how your child is supposed to play and to really be at ease. There were a lot of things that I'd been interested in as an artist such as autonomy and kind of movement and space that were there right in front of me with me and my own son. And that's when I became so interested in uh, Pickler pedagogy. I wanted to know more because to me it felt so meaningful and it still does feel very meaningful. As an artist, I always found the discrepancy between producing art or make, you know, working in your studio is very solitary existence and it takes a year or longer or it took a year or longer to, to work through my art. And then you have this big social moment, the opening and... It, it's just like... It's, it's <laughs> so empty. <laughs> yeah, it's so different. You know, the kind of the social moments uh, and the solitude that you experience in the daytime working in your studio. And it's yeah. almost like the opposite. <laughs> and then there's a lot of other aspects of living from your art that make it highly stressful. 
like to to afford groceries. Yeah, to to just to just have enough money to sustain yourself and also I noticed I had to do certain exhibitions that I wasn't necessarily interested in on a on a content level, but I just had to do that to have these things written on my resume. Yeah, publicity kind of. Yeah, and it was just so ironic and so uh, not sincere. I understand. And that really started to bother me. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and also when so when I was recovering from burnout, I had an exhibition in Boymans. I, so I was still uh, yeah, kind of feeling sick, but doing this exhibition and it was very rushed. I had only very, very limited time to set it up and stuff. I noticed what a kind of adrenaline rush I got from the, doing this. Yeah. And it was, I felt very lively and it was really great to feel like yeah. that. But then I also realized what the effect was on my body from doing that. And before I had a burnout or even before I had children, I just went from one one to the other. Like I always felt like that. My body never calmed down. So having the, mm. the burnout, I was all of a sudden in a different physical state. And then feeling again what I had always felt, which was my normal, I realized that the big impact it had. Those are important realizations to have, I think. And so that's one of the reasons why I stopped making art professionally. Do you still make art or do you just consider the, the Pickler project that you're on an extended performance piece? Yeah, it's, it's the same ideas, but I get to talk to people and it has meaning in their life. So after, for instance, producing an artwork for and working on it for more than a year, only a handful of people would see it. And some people would say back to me, how wonderful this was. This, this is absolutely great what you did. And I even won a very big prize with that artwork. You know, mm-hmm. so I did get recognition. It was uh, this Spanish art prize. This artwork went to Spain and then there was a, a jury uh, directors of very big institutes and then out of 25 international young artists under 35 or so I won this art prize and it was crazy amount of money 60,000 euros that's a lot yeah and and of course this was a it was a really big uh, moment of recognition for my work it was uh, very hard to then, you know, get back to your work in your studio and know that it was meaningful, that what mm-hmm. you did or what you are doing is really a contribution to life on this planet. I don't know, maybe mm-hmm. these are really high goals and people don't tend to, you know, ask that of <laughs> themselves because it makes, you know, pressure it, <laughs> pressure up. <It's> a <laughs> They are pretty high goals. Yeah, but I suppose it does matter to me. I do want to have the feeling that what I'm doing is helping people. Sure, it might not be a large number of people, but like you said, you would be approached by people who reacted positively to it. I think that making people feel good about those things is a positive contribution to the world. That's sort of how I've always rationalized myself doing support work. It's not very glamorous, but I actually help people and it makes them feel good. I like that. Yeah, you know, you get direct feedback. And as a, as a pickler pedagogue, I get direct feedback. And you're, you're like building children. 
Yeah, and the relationship between parents and their child that is respectful and really sets the tone for the the rest of their relationship together. The rest of their lives. Yeah. As a person who has issues with his parents, I can tell you that it's a meaningful thing. I personally don't believe there's a right or wrong way. I just think that there are certain things that you should or shouldn't do. But yeah, if more parents took the time to analyze those things or maybe pick a method or go through some steps to think about these sorts of things, I think everyone in the world would be better off. Yes, I, I, I think so too. And comparing this to life as an artist, the feedback with what you are actually doing and how it is meaningful to the lives of others was sometimes unclear and uh, hard for me to feel. Mm-hmm. This became a problem to me. And also combine that with I was approaching 40 and I was still being asked for exhibitions where, yeah, I was, I don't know, 36 weeks pregnant, asked for an exhibition and I would have to sleep over somewhere in a a basement on a air float mattress and I wasn't going to be paid. And I was really like, okay, well. But it's a, re- it's a really good opportunity. <laughs> I like your initiative because this was, this, this was an artist initiative. So I understand they work with low budgets, but then, yeah. you know, do I really want that in my life after working professionally as an artist for 10 years? Do I really want to lay somewhere on an air mattress <laughs> yeah high pre- highly pregnant having to go to the toilets i don't know six times a night and then <laughs> no you're really you're really painting a picture here <laughs> yeah, it was just so depressing <laughs> you know so so then and so, for what yeah so then so then i kind of uh after i had a burnout and i was struggling to get back i can i kind of said to myself okay, I'm only going to take on projects where I will be paid as an artist. That's a reasonable conclusion to come to. Yeah, and and then I didn't get such invites. (laughs) 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 Ah, weird how that happens. Yeah, so I've had such invites in the past before, so it's not that I never got paid, but that was one of the, the reasons why it kind of ended a slow death. (laughs) (laughs) good way to describe it (laughs) (laughs) i think it was fair of me to request that that this should be in my life now like that after so many years of working as an artist and also being or approaching 40 and being a mom uh, having to make money and having more responsibility towards people around me i should request to be paid for my work. I I think that's perfectly reasonable. On the other hand, I also know that I I think sort of being in the Netherlands or being a Dutch artist is kind of a double-edged sword because what you're describing is sort of part of the culture. In the Netherlands, they have a great system for actually supporting artists much better than my experience has been in America, There's where there's no support unless you're super famous and you win some crazy national grant. But they have a great system here where they, they actually give, they give artists money to develop them. You know, they kind of cast a wide net and, and it's really great. Of course, you get some freeloaders who are jokers and aren't, aren't making proper use of the system. But then you have people like Esme, like you, 
who actually develop into proper artists. The other side of the coin is that a lot of these artists aren't necessarily commercially viable. They're culturally viable, but not necessarily commercially viable. And what you're describing, I feel, is where the system starts to fail. There's a big blank spot in the middle. You sort of have to get over the years that you're describing to get recognition and support on the next level. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The system cultivates a lot of artists who make good culturally viable work, but unless they can sell things, paintings, whatever, to the masses, that's where the support ends. So then you get pregnant moms sleeping in basements and taking these assignments for no money because the the organizations that are organizing the shows don't have money to give to you. It, it, it only goes to a certain point. Yeah. Yeah. And I was part of that... Uh this money stream as well. Like I received a stipend twice. Yes. And for me, it was really hard to to combine it with becoming a mother. So I think I believe I had just received a stipend just before I became a a mom or I was still living of of it. So this actually allowed me to have a decent amount of pregnancy leave. But then there's this weird thing where you're not supposed to have a gap on your resume. Right. And of course, having a child leaves a gap on your resume because you are... Yes, it can. (laughs) It's really hard to work if you have a child crying. Well, that's true. All the time. Everybody's situation is different and everybody's kid is different. That's kind of the thing that standard rules don't take into account. Yeah, and also, you know, I was I was doing uh, residencies abroad, uh, and none of this I think is suitable for a child. There are some there are some residencies where parents artist parents can go with their child, but I think a very young child, a baby, thrives with a kind of regularity in their life, and if you live in a different country every six months or so. I I just couldn't see that working so well for me or my child because I would, you know, I could not take Thomas with me. I would be then single mom. (laughs) Right, right. In wherever, whatever country you were in. Yeah. So for instance, Iceland. You are in Iceland. Do you send your child to an Icelandic daycare for six months so you can work as an artist? I, I, I just, I just couldn't see how this would be working. I know there are uh, artists who do this and it does work for them, but I couldn't see this working for for our situation. I've definitely seen it. I can't recall too many examples of having babies, you know, maybe toddlers and kids that are just about to start school, but I, I can't rec- I can't think of any example of babies doing this. But yeah, I think that also it, it varies from kid to kid, but also parent to parent because parents deal with things differently so if being in iceland with a baby is going to freak you out if you're freaked out the baby's going to freak out right yeah so if but if you're but if you're if you're someone who has a baby and you go to iceland and you're not going to freak out you know developmentally i can't say anything but not freaking out is better than freaking out (laughs) as far as i can tell (laughs) yeah 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 that's true so uh, not that's not an indictment of people who freak out that's just 
if in your core set of beliefs it's not going to work out, then it's not going to work out. I, I just I just thought I would make my life harder that way, you know, because then all of a sudden you are a single parent and, you know, whereas staying in the Netherlands, I started at some point a regular daycare. So he had a regular caretaker. Children attach, young children, babies, attached to the steady figures around them. To change these figures every six months, I, I just couldn't see that be beneficial to my child. Right. So you decided to uh, stay in the Netherlands and not go to residencies. But this was, of course, my income also. Doing residencies was a, a source of income. Okay. Everything changed when I became a parent to how you can sustain your artist practice as a parent. Changes as soon as you have a child in the mix, I think. It did for me anyway. And then I had this uh, crisis and then <laughs> and then it kind of stopped. Yeah. But I was okay with it. It was a decision. You don't you don't lose any sleep over it. You don't think what about art? Uh no, because I replaced it with something that uh was anyway at the core of my artist practice. And so I'm still busy with the same ideas and research, but I found a field in which I can share it with people in a direct way. And that there's more practical capacity. Yeah, this gives me a lot of fulfillment. Like once do I Do you saw, ever think of do you do you feel like you're gonna do this even after your children are grown? Yeah, definitely. What about making art? Do you ever feel like you're gonna go back to the, the art making world? Not I mean I'm not saying that you're not gonna make art personally, but art do you ever think about going back to making art publicly? No. I am still making things. Although it uh, has shifted, so I'm collaborating now with my friend Sandra Niele, and she's mm. a furniture maker, and we are developing climbing toys for babies to six-year-olds. I've seen some of them. Yeah, and it's really wonderful like to collaborate with somebody who has the same kind of desire to make stuff in a really good, high-quality way. Is she the person who introduced you to the pickler thing? I was I wanted to ask before how you actually stumbled upon the pickler thing. Uh, well, that was no. I I introduced myself research. <laughs> That's how I for the research. Okay, so you actually sought it out in 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 the neighborhood or in the city or in the in the Netherlands. Well, how it went was uh, I googled how to make my child sleep through the night or something like that because we were having troubles with uh, with our firstborn and so then I ended up on Janet Lansbury's website and Janet Lansbury is a uh, rye um, so in America the Pickler pedagogy is known as rye parenting uh, R rye yeah rye but you write it R I E it stands for respectful infant educating okay and it's a uh, term coined by Magda Gerber. And Magda Gerber was a student of Emmy Pickler. But anyway, so that's how it ended up in America. And Janet Lansbury, she's, uh, she has a really great blog and podcast now as well, uh, where you can read all sorts of things about development of young children, also things that uh, you might come across in your journey as a parent. So I found her blog it was like I ended up in some kind of rabbit hole and I read tons and tons. And then I found out that she was also uh, doing these parent-infant classes. Somehow, I don't know how, but I did manage to find out that Rai was the same as Pickler. 
that this okay. this pedagogy was known in Europe as Pickler, Emmy Pickler. And previously, I knew of the Pickler triangle, but I thought it was she was a designer of some sort. I didn't know there was some idea behind this. <laughs> and then I found this group. At the time, there was only it was only three groups like that in the Netherlands. So one in Amsterdam, Eindhoven, and Wageningen. So I ended going to the one in Amsterdam and that's when I had this like epiphany moment when I stepped into this space, like this is my artwork. And uh, and then I wanted to know more and more. And that's how I became a Pickler pedagogue because I wanted to study it. I wanted to understand because some of these ideas are really not common. They're very mm -hmm. unusual. Initially, I also sometimes was disagreeing with it or not understanding it properly. Studying it, I became to understand the cohesion of all these ideas, understanding where each and every idea comes from and how it makes sense in the whole. So Emmy Pickler, she was born in um, 1902 and in the 30s she had a child of her own, which was the first Pickler baby. They let the child develop in a natural way in her own time. So they were not propping the child up or walking her by holding her hands, for instance. And this woman is now 90 years old and I'm also studying with her. So she's one of my mentors. And I'm studying. Emmy Pickler is no the daughter of Emmy Pickler. And Sweet Pickles. Well, let's call her Sweet Pickles. <laughs> Sweet Pickles. Well, her real name is Anna Tardels, and she All is. Right, let's call her. Let's call her that then. <laughs> and she has written really wonderful articles. So in the Pickler, the Pickler home is also a research institute. So I'm learning all of this at at the at the Pickler house in Budapest. Yeah, to me this is really wonderful to learn firsthand. It's pretty cool that she's living proof of the system or whatever. Yeah, and, and uh, also the other tutors I have, they worked in the orphanage. So it's now not an orphanage anymore, but the daycare center. But these the people who are working there, they are really taking... It is really the art of caretaking. It is done in such a beautiful way. I really think everybody can learn from this. From, you know, like I went to the hairdresser. I was sitting on this chair that can turn. She asked me to close my eyes because she was going to cut my fringe. And then all of a sudden she swooped the chair the other way. But I was sitting there with my eyes closed. Mm -hmm. I wasn't prepared of, for this movement. And I felt really like, you know, subjected. Oh, <laughs> sounds fun to me. <laughs> and and I, I didn't like that feeling at all. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, like, you know, I'm, I need to turn the chair so I can cut the other side. I would have been prepared and I yeah. would have found it no issue at all. And so this is how, this is what Pickler caretaking is. You, you see the other person as an autonomous being who has a right to know what's going to happen to them. And you tell them right. in advance. So, th so they already do this with, with babies from day one when they are born. I'm going to change your diaper. Yeah, and but then but then say every step. So I'm gonna lift you up right now, bring you to the diapering table. There you are. I'm gonna open the buttons of your trousers and taking it off. You wait also. It's not like a, a stream of words. You you wait until the baby processes the information. 
and then you go on and you see if there's a response. And if you do this in the same way, very young babies know what's going to happen and they anticipate and they cooperate. It sounds to me like, at least at that stage, it's more about training the parents for future parenting than it is about the baby. Maybe I'm off base on that, but because to me, it seems like it would be really easy to blow through those steps as a as an adult person. So I think that describing it the way you just described it, it sounds to me more like parent training. Well, I disagree. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Because, or, or how about also also parent training? Well, you can see that the child is listening attentively mm-hmm. and you can see a child is understanding and responding. And this in very young children, it might be due to the fact that it's always done in the same way and they start to anticipate it. But then uh, you as a parent, if you leave gaps and you wait and you are very slow with your movements, you are also allowing for an open space for the child to reply, and you become very attuned to what your child is communicating to you. And so it is a task, diapering is a task, but it's not approached as a task in Pickler caretaking, it's approached as a moment to connect. Hmm. So that's the most important thing that you're actually doing there on the diapering table. That makes some sense, yeah. You're seeing the other person. And you're acknowledging them. And you're doing that in in the way you hold your hands, the way you pick up your child, the way you speak to your child, the way you listen yeah. attentively. Well, I can tell you that when when I was changing diapers, most of the time I I just did it while singing a song that I like to call All the Single Babies. <laughs> S- sung to the melody of All the Single Ladies by Beyonce. All yeah. the single babies, all the single babies. Uh, uh, uh. So I guess that's uh, not really the same. Well, was it was it always a pleasurable experience for both of you? I'd say almost always. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember any specific bad experiences, but I'm sure that over the hundred million times I changed a diaper, there was probably one that was inconvenient and I was annoyed, but mostly it was fine. Okay. Well. That that I think that's the that's an achievement. I think a lot of parents diapering can become a, a hassle or a battle, um, especially uh, when you have a child that wants to move and wants to do other things, and they're not yeah. interested in this moment of. Yeah, uh, of course, of course. But I, I I think that in general, a lot of people have horror stories about how difficult their kids were. Ours were pretty easy, I think. I know people who had some serious problems, like you guys, that your kid wouldn't sleep. We have other friends whose kid wouldn't sleep. I remember we went over to visit uh, some people. It was the first time we'd seen them for, I don't know, it was three months maybe. And they, they looked so bad. They just looked so bad. And the kid, every time they put the kid down, he would freak out. And just, he just constantly wanted to be held. He wouldn't sleep. He, he was not very good at eating. It was just problem after problem after problem. And, and the two parents looked like they were about to die. Mm-hmm. And... I, I, yeah, we just never had that. Our kids always ate and they always slept. I mean, you know, it was the typical thing. Like we would have to wake up sometimes in the middle of the night or, you know, get up early in the morning, but we could still sleep relatively normally. Yeah, it really messes you up if you can't. (laughs) I know. I've witnessed it. I've witnessed it. And I know that you had a lot of troubles too. And I remember, yeah, I remember specific times like you guys were coming over and it was all like, no, we gotta, we gotta stick to the rhythm. We gotta stick to the rhythm. We gotta go. And it's like, okay, bye. Go stick to the rhythm. (laughs) And and, uh, I can see the effect that it has on parents when things don't go smoothly. Yeah, it was a disaster. (laughs) Yeah. 
I'm laughing, but it's all in the past now, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it was really survival. Yeah, I suppose that's also one of the reasons why I enjoy what I'm doing now is that I now have tools to help people if they are in this moment of survival or uh, to to give them a much more relaxed start. Sure. How busy does this keep you? Is it a full-time job? I don't have full-time time anyway <laughs> okay. because, because uh, with parenting duties. So I have about three and a half days of work a week. That's good. Yeah. So I'm doing these playgroups now myself. So the, mm-hmm. the playgroup that I went to that changed my life, I've just started doing those, the light area. And it's really nice to be doing that. It's also just a joy to see children playing and do you find that the the second time around it's easier? Yeah. Yeah, well. And is that because is that because you're in your groove and you have your method or just because of experience? I think it's that that now I know what I want to do or how I want to approach things. Like there's no question, there's no insecurities anymore. I'm not googling. <laughs> He's not sleeping. And I think a lot of this myself knowing what I want or how I want to approach things takes away a lot of the uneasiness or the for the child as well. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I think so too. If you don't yet know, I think a child can sense it that you are not secure. You haven't made your decision. Well, yeah, they sense a lot of things. With uh, the youngest, I was really I knew how I was I was gonna hold him. I would never be switching tactics as I went along. And I think that in itself was uh, helped to be at ease. It's it's hard for me to relate because I, I don't recall thinking about it too much. I just kind of did the thing. And I'm sure that there was a point where I held one of my children in a way that they did not appreciate. And I'm probably just made, I didn't look for a solution. Which way should I hold the child? I just kind of changed. There are different approaches for everything. And I, I, I'm just not the type of guy that, goes out looking for a, a, a child-rearing rubric. You know what I mean? I think that there are plenty of reasons why I'm, I'm a, a less-than-perfect parent, but I'm not, I'm not sure if that's one of them. Well, I, I'm not a perfect parent either, so <laughs> well, that's any consolidation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and lots of insecurities still. You know? Oh, man, tell me about it. But you talked about when when you first discovered the the Pickler playgroup, initially you found three, right? Well, I knew of the existence of three. Okay, but is it is it has it blown up? Are there groups everywhere now? I'm part of the second group of people in the Netherlands who are trained as Pickler pedagogues. Yeah. Um, so uh, I have not completely graduated. I'm almost at the end. I just have to write my thesis. Mm-hmm. But um, yes, there are more play groups now. So definitely, there must be somewhere around ten now. That's a lot compared to three. Yeah, but it's still relatively unknown. Professionals, people working in daycare, know about Amy Pickler sometimes, but parents, hardly anybody knows about it. It is the case that the Pickler Triangle is now becoming quite a hype. So there uh, there are a lot of people who start hearing about her through that way. But that's also why I started blogging about this pedagogy uh, in Dutch. But I'm also having a, 
an English website and I'm, I will be translating the, the blog posts. I'm going to set up a course as well. I want to set up an online course. Where, so this kind of thing that I'm doing now with parents on a one-on-one basis, I want that people can just purchase the course and do it in their own um in their time. own time. Yeah, <laughs> in their own time when it's convenient. And <laughs> and uh, if they if they want to then uh, book a consultation for uh, specific questions that they might have, which is anyway, parents can already do, but people haven't really approached me for that yet. So this sets up an infrastructure or an invitation for that. Yeah. You just mentioned your rough plan for the future. Mm-hmm. you know, with translating the site, making it available in multiple languages, but also the course thing. The stuff that you are doing that is going to improve your business, that is going to improve your livelihood, is the same stuff that everybody has to do, which is advertise it, get it out there, make people know about it, share whatever information you can to get people interested in it, and then give them a way to access you for that information, whether it's a Patreon account with some kind of a private chat or a course or any of this stuff. These are things that so many people who have their own businesses have to do now to make money. A while back, I started looking into the concept of financial independence and I listened to a lot of podcasts and read a a couple of books about financial independence and this idea really appeals to me. For me, it is very important to have the mental space, uh, therefore the financial financial capacity to develop my own ideas and to to really be able to delve into new things. Therefore, the idea to not work one-on-one only is a very important idea to become more financially, to have a financial stable mm-hmm. situation where you free up space and time to develop further. That makes sense. Yeah, so that that's one of that's why I, why this idea appeals to me. Well, you aren't alone. I know that this is a concept that many people start to think about and uh, and uh, pursue in uh, what with whatever knowledge that they have. And that, yeah, I think uh, online learning is great also because I wouldn't have access to all these wonderful teachers if it weren't for online learning. I don't know if you have. Uh... Uh, links or URLs ready at the hand, or if you want to send me some stuff afterwards, I'll definitely put all your links in the show notes. But if you have a couple links that you want to mention in the show, uh, well, so my website is in their own time.com, or if you read Dutch, in their own time.nl. In their own time.nl has blog posts in Dutch currently, and uh, the in their own time.com, you would still. Be referred to the Dutch one and use Google Translate until I have time to uh, translate them. <laughs> but that's where you find information about the playgroup, for instance. And also you can contact me if you think you would benefit from these, the, the parent consultation or guidance that I do online and in real life also if you live in the area. But then just send me a personal message. It's obvious how to contact you from the website. Yeah, there's a contact page. How convenient. Yeah. <laughs> that's very thoughtful of you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess that's pretty much what I wanted to hear about. I just I I think it's you basically reinforced that my personal idea that that this career that you've embarked on was born of need. I think that it's cool that 
you you researched and found out about this stuff after having your own problems. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. I, I think that the revelation that you you saw the connection between your your artwork and your child rearing ideas or problems going to this this play group was was like a, a eureka moment where you're just like, oh, this is this is what I've been training for. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think that that's a great realization. And I would say that that's a success, <laughs> wouldn't you say? In the personal development, uh, it is a success. Yeah. Yeah. I do think my life is richer uh-huh. because of it. Yeah, I, I do. Obviously, there's some aspects about being an artist that I'm currently not involved in that I miss. So, such as? Such as? Um, I think the really the independence, the, the kind of the level at which I could go deep into things. And okay. I've went to exciting places and meeting great people around the world. Can I ask you a question about the, well, I'm, well, never mind. I'm going to ask you a question about the choice of the word pedagogue. I just think it's a hilarious word, especially when coupled with pickler. <laughs> I'm wondering if pe- the word pedagogue was chosen specifically because of the alliterative effect of having two P sounds, pickler, pedagogue. I think it's coincidental. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but it, but is there is the, is the is the choice of the word pedagogue um, specific? Is it important that it's pedagogue? Because I'm not sure exactly what the difference is between teacher or educator. Is there is there is there a deeper meaning behind the word the use of the word pedagogue? Yeah, it's it's about interacting with a child. Teaching is where you really are wanting to learn something to a child. And pedagogy is more saying something about how you treat or act with a child. So through your actions, you are also being an example and you teach something, but it's not an explicit form of teaching. A pedagogue is really about upbringing, to do with a child's upbringing. An educator could also be to do with adults. Oh, okay. Oh, yes. Hence the, the the prefix ped. Okay, so it's it's specific to children. Yes, and ideas with how to interact with a child, and that so there's different forms of pedagogy. But so it's just a fun coincidence that it, it's so nice to say. Yes, it is. Let's say let what, say it say it. Pickler pedagogue. Pickler pedagogue. <laughs> I urge the listener to say it now, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Just say Pickler Pedagogue, and it'll. It's a nice thing to say. It's, it's nice. It's fun. Um, Esme, thank you for coming on the show. You're welcome. I appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. It was a nice conversation. I always say this, and I always think that that I'm missing something, and I'm sure going to kick myself as soon as we're done. But I think we we covered a lot of stuff, and at the very least, a handful of people will know what a Pickler Pedagogue is after this. Yeah. But also, I hope that some of the people understand that it's it's not necessarily about Pickler pedagogy. It's about finding something that is meaningful to you that you can do for a living. 
something that makes you feel like you are enriching yourself and other people and something that brings you satisfaction. I just think it's kind of cool that people can find these things. And I look forward to the day when I find something like that for myself, which I kind of doing a podcast is kind of that it's really fun, but it's, I'm not making any money. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm also not yet making loads of money, but I, but I'm working towards setting up certain projects that will lead to some money. It sounds like you're on the right track. You know, the intention was to start off, this was really just being so eager to get this knowledge and to, that was just the, the biggest motivator. The drive for research, it's in, your, it's in your DNA. Yeah, I think so. I was late to discover that. I was already like in my early 30s, I think. I'm sure if you, d- if you went back in time, you would probably find instances where you could see it. Yeah, probably as a child, you know, that I think it's the same kind of flow with which you do things and you can get lost in dissecting an animal, (laughs) making a fire. I don't know. (laughs) Something we all do daily. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mean like a worm or something. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure where you're going with this, but (laughs) But I'll just just let you go. I just mean the kind of things that you do as a child, the kind of passions with which you learn, you know, and then you find out something and then you want to know more and then you try another something. A lot of people forget how to do that, I guess. Yeah, but it's so wonderful. It is. Okay. All right, then. I guess we're done. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. That was Esme. I would elaborate on my feelings about the episode and Esme's career, but I feel like the last five minutes of the conversation do that already. Thank you very much for being on the podcast, Esme. Also, thanks to Ed Mubarak of Episode 5 fame for the audio editing and post-production services. He mixed and EQ'd the interview and even made the computer mic bearable. More importantly, he saved me many hours of my life. Speaking of hours of lives, thank you for filling some of your hours with Feel Free to Deviate. If you would like, feel free to deviate to fill up more of your time. Go to Instagram and check out the show's account at feel free to deviate. We're also on Facebook, but whatever. We have a website too. It's, you guessed it, feelfreetodeviate.com. Go to boomcast.com if you need an audio wizard. Ask for Ed. That's B-O-O-M-K-A-A-S.com. You can find Esme at intheirowntime.nl or in their own time.com. She's also on social at in their own time on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Yes, Pinterest. Maybe I should start a Pinterest account. I, I don't think I'm going to do that. Coming up in two weeks, I have a new episode for you, but I'm not exactly sure who it's going to be yet. It's either going to be Ben Licata, tattoo guy, or Melissa Woods, museum person slash goth fashion designer. Either way, it should be fun for me at least. And I really hope for you. Thanks for listening. Be excellent to each other.